Well, you have your Bibles open to chapter number 42. It's the last chapter of the book of Job. And uh, as you know, we're coming to the end of this uh, brief series today. In fact, by the way, let me just tell you where we're going beginning next week so you can read ahead and be preparing yourself. Um, we're going to begin a series next week called In the Wait. And we're going to be thinking all summer long. This series will go all the way through August. Uh, we're going to be thinking about the fact that the Lord Jesus is coming again. And I believe he's coming soon. If you think the, the evidence of our age is that Jesus could come at any moment, would you shout amen? amen. I know you believe that. I do too. And uh, so the question arises, if we really believe that, what should we be doing? While we wait, what is it that we ought to be about uh, in these days? And so we're going to be studying the books of First and Second Thessalonians, about nine chapters total. And so I would encourage you to go and read through both of those letters and uh, go ahead and begin preparing for that study. We'll begin it next Sunday, and we'll be thinking about that all through this summer in a summer-long teaching series. Well, I mentioned that uh, we've been thinking about children this week, and it prompted me to think about just, um, you know, not the tragedy about uh, the children in Texas this week, but just about uh, the joy that children bring to life just by being kids. Some of you are old enough to remember, was it Art Linkletter that had the show Children Say the Darndest Things? It's a little bit before my time, uh, but for some of you, you remember that. And, um, and they do, don't they? Kids... Uh, ask the most candid questions. They say what's on their mind uh, because they haven't learned the politeness of a filter yet. And so they just say it. They, they just speak the truth. Um, I'll never forget when our son Evan was about 10 years old, maybe a little younger, eight or nine, something like that. Uh, we were sitting in church one Sunday and I was sitting next to him. I was getting ready to get up to preach. I had my arm around him. I think it was Father's Day. And I leaned over to Evan and I said, hey, Evan, I'm going to be preaching today about being a good dad. Do you think I qualify? And I was expecting him to say, oh, yeah, dad, you're the best. And uh, his response with this serious look on his face was so thoughtful, he said, you need a Tic Tac. <laughs> I didn't see that coming. But it was just, you know, it's the truth. He just said what he thought. And here's the thing. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Because Evan now is grown and has a daughter. Uh, he and uh, Laura have a daughter, Ellie, our little granddaughter, Ellie. She's five years old now. And about a year ago, when she was four, she was at our house one day, and she needed a toy off of a shelf that she couldn't reach. And she came to me and said, Papa Jay, will you go and get that toy down for me? And I was like, yeah, I'll go do that. And I was busy, and it was taking me a little longer than she liked for me to, to get there. And so she just started on her own. And as she walked past me, she patted me on the stomach and said, come on, fluffy boy. <laughs> I loved her until then. So... But I mean, this is kids, right? This is, you've experienced that. This is what kids do. And here's what I'm thinking today. I'm thinking that Job experienced some of that himself. I'm thinking that Job had some little ones in his life that said some of those things to him. Let me tell you why I think that. Look with me at chapter 42 and verse number 16. Verse 16 says, After this, Job lived 140 years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons even unto four generations. 
What verse 16 tells you is that Job saw four generations of his grandchildren. That means that Job lived long enough to meet his great, great, great grandchildren. And I'm just imagining as a granddad, and maybe it's because I'm a granddad that I'm thinking this way, but I'm just imagining that there were some moments when some of these little ones climbed up in Job's lap. And you know how kids will take and put your hand in their face and they'll turn your face and pull your ears and look at your skin? And I'm just imagining there was a moment when some of those grandchildren were looking closely at their granddaddy, Job, and they said, Papa Job! Where'd you get these scars? Don't you think? Where'd you get these scars? And depending on how old they were, I'm sure that Job gave them an answer that would explain to them what had happened in his life long before they were ever born. He would have talked to them about the suffering that he endured and that his family, that their family, walked through. He probably told them about their aunts and uncles who had died all those years ago. And about his friends who turned out to be not so great friends. And about his God who had been so faithful to him. You see, this is the way it is with hardship. In the same way that Job's boils that were covering him from head to toe would have naturally left deep scars on his body. That's the way it is with life. When we endure hardship, when we go through suffering, when we, when we have great loss, it leaves a mark on our lives. It scars us in some way. And when the suffering that we endure is life-altering like Job's suffering was, that mark or that scar becomes the measuring point for everything else in your life Forever. When you endure some great loss or you go through some deep season of suffering, forever after that, you will say, this happened before that event. Or you will talk about events that happened since that event happened. You know, before such and such died, before such and such happened, this is the way it was. But ever since then, this is the way it's been. When did that happen? Well, you know, that was after this event occurred. Or that season happened. The point is that Job's life, just like my life and yours, are divided into parts. And the thing that makes the division are these events of suffering sometimes. Now Job's life is divided in this passage into two parts. And I want you to notice it by circling some words in the text. If you have your pen, go up to verse number 10 and look at the very last word in verse number 10. It's the word before. You should circle that, before. And then verse number 11 talks about his acquaintances and his brothers and sisters coming uh, to see him as they had before. So verse 10, 11, circle the word before. Job had a life that was before. And then if you look at verse number 12, verse 12 talks about Job's latter end. Circle that. His latter end. That's the second part of his life as compared to his beginning. That would have been the first part of his life. And again, verse number 16. You should circle the two words after this. After what? After this season of suffering, then 
Job lived, verse 16 says, 140 years. Here's my point, that Job's life was divided into two parts, and it was divided by his suffering. Now, the Bible says in verse number 16 that Job lived after his suffering for 140 years. We don't know how long, or I'm sorry, how old Job was before his season of suffering began. We can estimate, we know that he wasn't 20, because he had 10 grown children. So he had to have at least lived long enough to father 10 uh, grown children. And so we, we would assume that he was somewhere around, you know, at a bare minimum 50 years old, probably more like 60 or 70 years old, when uh, his suffering begins. And if you do the math on that, that means that Job would have lived to be approximately 200 years of age. Maybe 190, maybe 210, but somewhere around 200 years of age. By the way, wouldn't it be an interesting study, and we'll do this one day, to think about the biblical lifespan and why it was that men and women lived so much longer in, in uh, the uh, antediluvian world pre-flood. They lived much, much longer. And even in the years following the flood, they lived much longer than we do now. And so we, we might talk about that at some point. But Job lived, the Bible says, about 200 years. Now that would have put him um, around the time of the patriarchs. That Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Terah, they lived around that time frame of 190 to uh, a little more than 200 years old. Well, so Job had this two parts of his life, one part that was uh, 50 to 70 years, another part that was 140 years, divided by this suffering line. Now, because he lived so long, as I've mentioned, this longevity gave Job the privilege of knowing and being able to meet and influence five generations of his family. And no doubt that was his reward for keeping hope alive. The fact that he kept hope alive in his life allowed him to live long enough to pass that hope along to all of those generations. Now, by the way, I should just say, this ought to be great motivation for us. Think about it for a second. We ought to be deeply motivated to, to keep hope alive when we go through a valley because we know that there are little eyes that will be watching us suffer and that will come along in future generations that will know about our suffering. And we want to be able to demonstrate to them the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God and the veracity of a faith life. We want to be able to demonstrate that to them by the way that we press on through those difficult days. It's a great motivator to us as it was to Job. There are a lot of little eyes watching. So when you walk through a valley, respond in such a way that those eyes will see you walking in faith. Well, Job had the privilege of doing that, and we're going to see the end of his life today in chapter 42. You follow along. I'll read beginning in verse number 7. Job 42 and verse 7. So the Bible says, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my wrath is kindled against thee and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job has. Therefore, take unto you now seven bullocks and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up for yourselves a burnt offering. 
and my servant Job will pray for you, and him will I accept. Do this, lest I deal with you after your folly, in that you have not spoken of me the thing that is right, like my servant Job has. Did you notice, by the way, that four times in three verses, God called Job by a particular title. He said, my, what? Say it, my servant Job. Four times in three verses. Now, loved ones, there is no greater thing that God could say of you or me than this, that you are God's servant. If it would be true that God would say, Jim is my servant, Jim is my servant. If God would spend three verses saying of me that I was his servant, there could be no greater honor. And the same would be true of you. And so my, my, my encouragement to you, my challenge to you is be a servant of the Lord. Surrender your life to serve him and God will take notice of that life that's fully surrendered to him. He said, my servant Job will pray for you and I'll hear his prayer. Verse 9 So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did according as the Lord had commanded. The Lord also accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he prayed for his friends. Also, the Lord uh, gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came unto him all of his brothers and his sisters and Uh, all of his acquaintance which knew him before. And they did eat bread with him in his house and they bemoaned him or had sympathy for him and comforted him over all that the Lord had brought upon him. Every man also gave Job a piece of money and everyone an earring of gold. So the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning for he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels, and a 1,000 yoke of oxen, and a 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons, seven more sons, and three more daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women found so fair as the daughters of Job. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, even four generations. So Job died being old and full of days. It's a beautiful ending to this really difficult and tragic story. It's almost a happily ever after ending, isn't it? I mean, you almost could, could write in there, and they all lived happily ever after. The only problem with that is, is that you and I know that fairy tales are the things of happily ever after. And in real life, there really aren't happily ever after endings. Though we may live happily throughout our lives, we endure difficulties and hardships. And I'm sure that in 140 more years... Job had some difficult days, some hard times. Nothing like he endured in the text, I'm confident, but he would have gone through 140 years of normal living like all of us do. And so I want us to wrap this up today by, I just want to give you a couple of principles, kind of some life principles that we can take from the book of Job 
as we walk out of here today, things that we can apply to our lives. Now, before I do that, though, I, I do want to uh, highlight a couple of passages that we haven't had time to deal with uh, as we've moved through the text, and they really demonstrate the faithfulness of God to Job as we come to the end of the book. Why don't you just jot it down this way? Let's, let's um, recognize that in the end of Job's life, his faith became sight. Let me talk about this for just a minute, and then we'll get to those life principles. In the end, Job's faith became sight. Now, all through these five weeks that we've been studying through the book of Job, I have been very honest with you to talk about the failings of Job. We've acknowledged he was a good man, a godly man, a righteous man, a man that the Lord said there's not another one like him in all the earth. He was a godly guy, but he's also a, a faltering and a fallen man. And over these weeks, we've talked really honestly about the fact that Job's response to his suffering was, was wrong in so many ways, that he demonstrated a lot of anger, that he demanded answers from God, that he would tell him why this was happening, that, he, that he, he complained about how unfair his situation was. He demonstrated a fair amount of pride, disappointment. He was impatient with God. Uh, he demonstrated irritation toward God. All of these things are true in Job's response. But in all of that, in fact, sometimes in the same sentence where he was expressing those things, he did continue to hang on to his faith. And this is the way it is for us sometimes. When we're going through a hardship, we sometimes will respond out of frustration or discouragement or irritation or impatience or pride. But even while we're doing that, we're clinging to the Lord because we have nothing else, no one else to cling to. And this is what you see in Job. He's almost like this guy who's been thrown overboard into this raging storm. He's hanging on to a life, a life ring. That's all he's got. But while he's cursing the storm and, and cursing the waves, he's not letting go of the life ring because the only thing that's keeping his head above water is the life ring. And so Job is expressing, in the midst of his frustration, he's expressing his faith. God. Let me show you a, a couple of examples where this is true. Turn back to Job chapter number 23, if you will. Actually, let's go one before that. Go to Job chapter 14. Look at Job chapter 14 because you'll know this passage. It's familiar. Job 14 and verse number 1. You probably heard this at a funeral. Job 14 verse 1 says, Man that is born of a woman is of few days and full of trouble. That's Job's analysis of life. You're not going to be here long, <laughs> and the days that you're here are going to be marked with a fair amount of hardship. That's what Job said. In fact, he goes on to illustrate this in verse 2 when he says, a man comes forth like a flower. There's this beautiful uh, blossoming in life. Man comes forth like a flower, <laughs> and then he's cut down. And it's this, it's this hopeless sort of view of life. He goes on down in verse number 7 to liken it to a tree. It's almost as if he's saying, I wish I were a tree. Because you know what's true of a tree? Look at it, verse number 7. There's hope for a tree. If a tree is cut down, it will sprout again. That tender branch will not cease Though the root thereof grows old in the earth and the stump thereof dies in the ground, yet when water comes, 
it will bud and it will begin to sprout branches again. He's talking about the olive tree because the olive tree was all through that part of the world and Job knew that you can't kill an olive tree. And you can't, by the way. You can set an olive tree on fire, burn it till it's charred to nothing, then cut it down, dig it out as deep as you can and, 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 and cover it up and say that tree is gone and it will begin to sprout again next year. You can't get, olive trees live to be thousands of years old. And so Job says, I wish I were an olive tree. <laughs> because if an olive tree gets cut down, at least it's going to grow again. But look at what he says about a man, verse number 10. But a man, when a man dies, he wastes away. When a man gives up the ghost, he's gone. Where is he? You can't find him. Like the waters fell from the sea and the flood decays and dries up, so a man lies down. He doesn't rise up again. Till the heavens pass, he shall not awake nor be raised out of his sleep. That's his analysis of what, it like, what it's like to be a person, that life is full of trouble and when you die, it is over. And, and again, that's that ex, ex, expressing this desperation, this exasperation with the way that life is. But then look at verse 13. Here's this hope rising, this faith rising. Verse 13, oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would keep me in secret until your wrath passes, that you would appoint a day for me, and God, that you would remember me. Hope grows some more. Verse 14, if a man dies, shall he live again? Shall he be like a tree? If he dies, shall he live again? All the days of my appointed time, I will wait till my change comes. Listen to the faith of verse number 15. God, you shall call, and I will answer. You will have a desire for the work of your hands. God, I believe that you will reach for me. Do you see the faith in this, in this, in this statement? Job's so hurting and so irritated and so desperate, and yet there's hope rising. Now go to chapter number 23. Look at this verse, only one verse. Chapter 23 and verse number 10. He says in that verse, but he knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Do you see the faith in that verse, the hope in that verse? You say, Pastor, what's the hope there? The hope is this. He's saying that I'm going to come out on the other side of this. That God's doing something. And there's, gonna, there's a refining happening in my life. Uh, go back. I, I missed one. Go back to chapter 19. How could we skip this one? Look at chapter number 19, verse number 23. You know this passage. Verse 23 says, oh, Job speaking, oh, that my words were now written, that they were printed in a book. By the way, just stop and say amen. They were. <laughs> oh, that they were printed in a book, that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though the skin worms will destroy this body, yet in my flesh I will see the Lord. Do you hear the faith? Man, what faith Job had going through these difficulties. What insight God had given him. I mean, before the law had been written, before, before Jesus had come and brought the gospel, before the Bible had been written, God had given to Job this incredible insight. And this deep faith. And that faith resulted in something. It worked its way out 
in Job's life. Write these things down. Number one, what did this faith do for him? This faith caused Job to know that God was working something in his life. He said, God's doing something to me. That's chapter 23, verse 10. I'm going to come through this. And, and, and I'm going to shine like gold. I'm going to be refined when I get through this on the other side. This was his faith to say, there is a purpose in my pain. This valley is not the point of my life. It's part of the process of my life. Listen to me. Listen, I want you to hear this. If you're going through hardship, know this. There is a life after your current situation. There is a purpose to what God is doing, and he is working his purpose in you. So let him keep working it. Job understood this. Number two, this faith that Job had caused him to know that God had promised to give him eternal life. This is the hope of chapter number 14 where he's talking about that tree. He says, man, at least a tree will bloom. And then he begins to talk about, well, God, could I live eternally? Would you call for me and, and have a desire that I would be with you? I mean, listen, you know, Job lived before David did. David hadn't written the 23rd Psalm yet. He didn't get that out of his daily devotional. He, he hadn't read, surely I will, goodness and mercy will follow me and I'll dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He didn't know that. But he believed. He had faith to believe in eternal life. Jesus hadn't, hadn't promised the promise of John 14 yet. Jesus hadn't come and said anything about my father's house. I'm going to build a place for you and come again and take you there. Paul hadn't written 1 Corinthians 15 yet. He didn't know about this eternal body that we would have. And so the point is that before all of those things came, God gave him faith to believe in eternal life. The third thing that Job's faith did for him was that it caused him to know that Jesus, and yeah, I said Jesus, it caused him to know that Jesus would come to earth and redeem us. Now, I'm not suggesting that Job knew the name Jesus, but I am suggesting to you that the, that the faith of Job caused him to know that there would be a redeemer that would redeem him. This is what chapter number 19 is about, Job's confident statement. That the Redeemer would come, that the Redeemer would stand upon the earth, and that the Redeemer would make it possible that he, even after he died, that, that graphic language of chapter 19 where he says, though the skin worms, and many people believe that the boils that he had were infected and infested with worms, that these skin worms would devour his flesh, and even after he died, he would decay. But he says, I know my Redeemer will stand, and I will see God face to face. It was his faith that caused him to believe that. And I wonder, by the way, have you ever thought about where did Job go? Because he dies in chapter number 42, verse number 17. So Job died, being old and full of days. Where did Job go when he died? You ever think about that? Job lived a long time before Jesus. And Job was a sinner like you and I are sinners. And, and so he had to be redeemed in order to go to heaven. He couldn't just waltz into the presence of God. So where did he go? And not only Job, but what about other men and women of the faith who lived before Christ did? Well, the Bible gives us some insight. Hold your finger and Job will come right back to it. Let me show you this over in the New Testament. Go to Luke chapter number 16. In, in this passage in Luke 16, we have a, a story. Jesus tells a story about two men. A rich man and then a poor man named Lazarus. 
And the Bible says in verse number uh, 20, there was a certain beggar, I'm in Luke 16, verse 20, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at the rich man's gate, and Lazarus was full of sores. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like Job. Verse 21, and he desired to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Verse 22 says, it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. A place called Abraham's bosom. Now, Abraham is the father of faith, right? And because he was the father of faith, he was called the friend of God. And so Abraham is the father of faith, and when, when Lazarus in Luke 16 was uh, dying, he was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. That's what it means to be in his bosom, to be in the presence of, or to be with Abraham. So the, the implication is, in Scripture, that there was this place, this, um, this place of rest and comfort called Abraham's bosom, where those who died in faith before Christ came to redeem us, where they went and waited for the Redeemer that Job so confidently said one day will come, they went and waited for that Redeemer to come. This, in the Hebrew, is called Sheol. It's, it's the place of death or the place of waiting. Now, it also, according to Luke 16, is a place that is divided because there's another part of Sheol which is called that place of torments where the rich man went. They are separated and those who died in the faith went into Abraham's bosom into that place of comfort. By the way, Jesus spoke about this as well in Luke chapter number 23. Just turn, it's a couple of pages. Look at Luke 23, verse number 43. Jesus is on the cross dying The thief says to him, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says in verse 43, verily I say unto thee, today you shall be with me in paradise. Now, is paradise heaven? Was he saying you and I are going to heaven this afternoon? I don't think so. I don't think so. I think what he's saying is you're going to Sheol. You're you're going into Abraham's bosom. You're going to be there with me in that place of rest. Every person who died in the faith before Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead, died in faith looking forward to a redeemer, just like Job did, and they waited in Abraham's bosom. In fact, the Bible says in Matthew 27 that when Jesus rose from the dead, some of the saints came out of the grave and were seen. And Ephesians says that when Jesus ascended, he led captivity captive. He defeated death in the grave. And those who had been waiting in Abraham's bosom were allowed to enter into heaven. So, Where did Job go when he died? He went to Abraham's bosom. Where's Job today? He is with the Lord. He is with his Redeemer. And where will uh, will we see Job when we get to heaven? You better believe it. We will see him. And we will say to him, Job, I know where you got those scars. I read about it at Brookstone Church. He knew that he would live forever because his Redeemer would come to get him. Let me ask you a question. Do you have as much faith as Job did? Do you believe that Christ is the Redeemer? And that he is your only hope for eternal life. I hope you do. Well, let's go back to Job chapter number 42. I I just didn't want to end this series without without talking to you about Job's great faith. Isaiah chapter 42. I just want to give you these two handles very quickly as uh, as we leave today and conclude this series. Two life lessons. In fact, jot that down. Let's, Let's just learn some life lessons from Job's experience 
of suffering. Here's the first one from Job 42. It is that God will turn your misery into ministry. This is a lesson that you and I can take away from this. That God will turn the misery that we endure into ministry. Job became not the suffering one who needed help, as in the beginning of the book, but he became the minister of help in the end of the book to Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Look at it, verse number 7. It was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto the, unto Job, he said to Eliphaz, I'm angry with you. My wrath is kindled against you, for you have not spoken what is true of me as my servant Job has. So you're going to have to have a sacrifice. You and Eliphaz and Bildad are going to have to have a, and Zophar are going to have to have a sacrifice. And I want you to go to Job. And I want you to, to offer that sacrifice with Job and ask Job to pray for you. And so imagine this moment where those who have been sitting around Job as his accusers for all these days, now are coming, hat in hand, offering in hand, saying, Job, we've been so wrong, we're so sorry. God's angry with us, would you please pray for us? And the table's turned, and God used his suffering and made him, put him in a position to be a minister. Now listen to me, listen. There are some things that you will never be equipped to do unless you walk through the deep valley to get to that place. There are some ministries that you can't offer to somebody else unless you've walked through the place previously and now you have the experience to help them and through it. There's some things you can't learn sitting in church. You can't learn sitting in a classroom. You've got to experience them. And when you walk through a deep valley and a hard time and you're suffering and scars are being made on your heart and in your life, know this, that God will use that suffering to prepare you to minister to someone else in the future. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, it's one of my favorite passages, verses number 3 and 4. Now make a note and go read it later. It says this, Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation so that we may be able to comfort others also with the same comfort that we've received from God. Somebody say praise the Lord. That means that the help you're getting from God and from other people, God's going to use through your life to give to somebody else down the road. So when you go through the suffering, know there's a purpose in it. God will use it. Number two, second life principle, is that God will restore to you everything that the enemy has taken away. God will restore to you everything that you've lost in your suffering. Let me show you this principle, verse number 10. And the Lord turned the captivity of Job when he uh, prayed for his friends. Now, it's an interesting turn of of, uh, phrase, isn't it? God turned the captivity of Job. Why does he say it that way? Because Job had been taken captive by his suffering, taken captive by his circumstances. And God released him from that captivity at the end in the second part of his life. God released him and restored to him what he had lost. Think about it like this way, like the children of Israel who went into captivity and lost everything uh, multiple times and then God would turn their captivity and allow them to return to the land and he would restore to them what they had lost. Well, the Bible says that God turned Job's captivity or released him from that captivity and restored, verse number 10 says, that he restored to him 
everything that he had lost, in fact, twice as much as he had before. Verse number 11, all of his friends came and his brothers and sisters came to his house to eat with him. Now, by the way, can I just be honest for a minute? Does anybody feel what I'm feeling just a little bit right here? Like, about time. <laughs> Where y'all been? You know, like the little chicken that made the bread and nobody wanted to help, they just wanted to eat the bread? Now, I'm confident that the reason they came back around is because God was healing Job from his disease. They weren't afraid to come around him anymore. But they came around. God, God returned or restored his family. Verse number 12, God returned his wealth in double. God blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. He had twice as many sheep, twice as many camels, twice as many yoke of oxen, twice as many female donkeys to do the, to do the work. I want you to know that like Job, whatever you've lost, God will restore. Now, if you're listening to me, I want you to shout amen. amen. Listen carefully. I cannot promise you that God will restore everything to you in this life. I cannot promise you that. He might. He might do for you what he did for Job, but he might not. But like Job, our hope is not in this world. And so he will restore what this world and this brokenness and the evil and the enemy and our fallen flesh, he will restore what we have lost, but it may be that he will restore at the moment we step into heaven and we begin to enjoy and experience all that his redemption has provided for us. And do you know what? That's okay. Because my hope is not in this world. And so if I lose it all and, and I die in a place of brokenness and all is lost, when I open my eyes in heaven because my Redeemer lives, everything that has been taken from me here will be restored to me in that glorious presence of God. If my peace has been taken, I will have perfect peace in heaven. If I have felt lonely because of loss, I will have no loneliness in heaven. If I have been poverty-stricken in this life, in heaven I will have forever what I will need in every imaginable way. Everything that has been lost is restored to us in our Redeemer Jesus. Let me close by reading to you from Revelation chapter number 21, this promise of restoration. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1, says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Can I get a witness? This earth is a wreck. If you wonder about why we need a new earth, you need only look beyond the bloodshed of Uvalde this week. This earth is broken. It's evil. I want to tell you something. There's a new earth coming one day. There's a new heaven coming one day. For the first earth and the first heaven were passed away and there's no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven. So beautiful, it looked like a bride adorned for her husband. Every city you visit in, these, in this earth is filled with evil and sin and secrets and crime. It's all, it's all broken and dark and shadowy. But one day there will be a city, the city of God, beautifully prepared. They heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. If you wake up in the middle of the night with hot tears wetting your pillow because of loss and suffering and grief, 
I want to say to you that one day God will restore all of that and he will wipe away those tears in heaven. God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Verse 4 goes on to say, There shall be no more death. There shall be no more sorrow, neither crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. Here's my favorite, verse number 5. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. I set all things right. Whatever it is that you've lost in this life, trust in Jesus Christ. And the moment you arrive in heaven, you will have all you'll need for eternity. Job had faith to believe this. Even though he was hurting and suffering and and even though he was struggling with his responses, he held on to the fact that his Redeemer was coming and his Redeemer would give him life. And when Job passed away, he waited quietly until Jesus came. And I don't know what that might have looked like that day when he sees Jesus face to face, but I believe he said, my Redeemer, my Redeemer. Is Jesus your Redeemer? Do you have that hope of eternal life? If not, I hope you'll trust him today.